The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's political podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our mystery guest, Paul Mitchell. Paul, not who much are of, you and why are you here? Yeah, not much of a mystery guest by now if people have been listening to the podcast. Um, I'm Paul Mitchell and I am the Vice President of Political Data Incorporated. I also own a little company called Redistricting Partners that does a lot of demographic work. And uh, I'm here to talk about an article that's going up on Monday with regards to the bellwether elections that we just saw mm-hmm. uh, and their potential impact for the 2018 cycle mm-hmm. nationally. And then maybe looking at if these dynamics we see nationally are going to actually spill over into California or not. Are you seeing anything yet? Are there any signals about, I know we're a year out, but are there any signals that you're seeing that what happened back in the East, back in Virginia especially, where that plays out here in any way? Are, we, are there similarities you're seeing? Well, first off, understanding and defining what's happening nationally is important for people to kind of begin the conversation. And that is that uh, as we've seen in past election cycles, immediately after one party takes control of the presidency, the first election after that, the first what they call midterm election after that, is generally like a recalibration or a reaction to that new president. So in 1992, when Bill Clinton and Al Gore won the presidency and we had this big democratic wave, remember with U.S. senators around the country and the soccer moms and this kind of big uh, kind of democratic victory instead of victories across the country, both the presidency and in Congress, that kind of pushed a little bit maybe too far for a lot of the public with regards to how democratic, all the democratic victories. And in 1994, Newt Gingrich with the Contract of America was able to have this kind of reactionary wave where we saw huge numbers of um, elected officials coming from the Republican side, the whole, yeah. you know, the, this this essentially this this idea of the midterm election being a reaction to the president and the administration in power. And then we saw it again in after 2008. After Barack Obama got elected president, we saw a huge wave in the 2009 bellwether elections like we're seeing right now in the 2010. Yeah, just and all over the state, all over the country. There was it's amazing when you look not only did Republicans take Senate and Congress in the in the years that Obama was president. But in that first cycle in 2009-2010, they won state legislatures and governors at a rate we've never seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, a total of 721 legislative seats won by well, Like 300 of those were in New Hampshire, right? Well, no, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, there are state legislatures that are larger than others, and I'm not an expert on all the state legislatures, but there are a ton of them. And not only did a lot of individual legislative seats be, get won by Republicans, but Republicans gained what we call trifectas, which is states in which the governor and the legislative branches, both of them, were owned by uh, one political party, controlled by one political party. And clearly we have states a, might have a redistricting edge, Yeah, if the commissions are not independent, and most yeah. are not. So. I was sitting in an airport right after the 2010 elections, uh, and, um, and I remember sitting at the airport on Twitter 
and basically trying to impress upon people how important these gubernatorial and legislative elections were because we were on the precipice of the 2011 redistricting. So whatever gains were made in 2009 and 2010 in state legislatures and governor's offices could essentially be made permanent by redistricting control. Now, this trend went nationally, but in California, it, it, it didn't happen. In fact, California was the only state where in 2010, uh, Democrats actually picked up a legislative seat. Mm -hmm. So 721 Republican gains nationally, and then like California being the little outlier, they have one Democratic gain. It was complete difference. So fast forwarding to today, we see a country where Republicans are incredibly dominant, largely because of the gains from the last eight years. And it's natural to expect some kind of correction now, both a polarizing Republican president and a likely kind of overreach by Republicans and their ability to get elected in places that they wouldn't have normally by Republicans uh, throughout the country because they were given this kind of tailwind of mm -hmm. an Obama presidency, a very polarizing Democratic administration. And so Republicans' reaction was to kind of lash out and elect members of Congress and elect members of the legislature and governors uh, because it was a response to the Democratic presidential administration. Well, and, and the irony here is that a lot of the 2010 backlash came from the health care push, which people were very resentful of. They did not want Congress and the president messing with their health care. And so Republicans are swept to power in response to <clears throat> the creation of Obamacare. And in Virginia, I think the number one the, the number one reason people were voting, I think 75% cited health care yeah. as the reason they were voting the way they were voting. So it's interesting that it totally has flipped, Yeah, and, at, and least in, at least in Virginia and obviously yeah, in Maine. In Maine, where they passed a statewide ballot measure expanding uh, Obamacare there. So the um, – but what's interesting is like we have to juxtapose both what's happening nationally and what's happening in California because nationally we have these huge waves, we have these huge gains. But in California, if you were to go hunting – for a member of the legislature or a member of Congress or a statewide constitutional officer who was swept into office because of the voters being so upset about Obama, you can't find one. Like nationally, there's all this low-hanging fruit for Democrats to go after seats where members of the legislature or Congress got elected on the kind of anti-Obama wave. And now with maybe an anti-Trump wave, these seats are vulnerable. But in California, there are no elected officials in the state that were elected in the anti-Obama wave. In fact, we've gone from 19 members of Congress when Obama was elected to 14 members, 19 Republican members of Congress to 14 Republican members of Congress. Uh, we've gone uh, to a two-thirds majority in the legislature, both the Assembly and the Senate. We have uh, Democrats at all constitutional offices. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> nationally a wave in the abstract should really propel a lot of Democrats to wins in governor's offices, state legislatures, and Congress. But in California, it's kind of like they're slim pickings. Mm -hmm. Where at the macro level, how will a anti-Trump wave really affect 
uh, our elections that greatly, given that we don't have 25 Republican members of Congress, nine of which or something were elected, uh, you know, because of anti-Obama fervor. Do you think those seven seats, uh, I've heard a lot of about <coughs> seven or eight seats, that have Republicans right now that voted for Hillary in 2016, is, does this anti-Trump wave affect those seats in any, it seems a little bit, yeah. I saw ISA, Daryl Issa, for example, down south, uh, not going along with the Republican tax reform plan, for example. Yeah. Hey, Daryl Issa is very, is very politically astute, and he knows how to kind of, I think, uh, understand the, the, these wins that are happening uh, and political change that's happening around the country. Um, so you do have seven members of Congress who are in districts that were won by uh, Hillary Clinton. In those seven districts, you have varying degrees, I think, of vulnerability for those individual members. Um, I'd say the districts that have the greatest vulnerability are the districts wherein the Republican voting base is more affluent, highly educated, uh, because okay. those were the voters who um, were most kind of upset by the Trump uh, election and maybe yeah. the ones that, you, when you look at Virginia, it was the it was the suburbs and the higher income voters and in fact higher income white voters that were likely the the swing in in the virginia races and so we do have some of those virginia type voters in california um so let's look at this as a comparison to the 2014 primary and the 2014 general those republican members are in much more serious grave concern for their re-election than they would have been in the 2014 election because the 2014 election we saw what we see in gubernatorial elections we see much better republican performance much lower democratic performance much lower performance by latinos much lower performance by young people and renters and so on and higher turnout by uh wider higher income homeowners you know and and so on and so if you're going to compare apples to apples and you say, how bad is this 2018 election cycle going to be compared to 2014? I'd say given this national wave, 2018 is going to be a lot worse than 2014. But is that enough to actually have these Republican members lose their yeah. seats? Mm -hmm. If you're to say it kind of an apples to oranges comparison, how does 2018 look to compared to 2016? I think it's hard to find people, anybody, who would honestly look at the 2016 turnout and say that we're going to have in 2018 a turnout that's going to be more progressive, better for Democrats mm. than 2016 presidential election cycle. It's rather unheard of in California that you would have a gubernatorial election cycle with higher turnout from these low turnout populations than what we saw in the presidential now, could election. could that shift uh, because of the candidates for governor? I know that there, we very likely will either have an Asian-American uh, candidate for governor or a Latino candidate yeah. for governor. Could that drive turnout among yeah. among constituencies yeah. that don't, although Seems I think Asian-Americans yeah. actually turn out pretty high. Yeah, exactly. So when we're talking about this, we're talking about kind of the known knowns, right? We're talking about a generic gubernatorial and U.S. Senate primary, a generic uh, statewide contest that would be Dem versus Republican in the, mm -hmm. in the runoff. We're talking about, like, hold all the other constants stable, then you would expect that this election is going to look 
better than 2014 for Democrats, but not as good as 2016 because that was a presidential race. Now, things can completely change. First off, at the micro level, let's say Democrats do a much better job recruiting candidates and fundraising in a district like Ed Royce's district or Mimi Walter's district or even Daryl Ice's district. Let's say that uh, something happens at the national level that creates even more polarization for the electorate. Let's say that Democrats push $30 million into a set of four or five congressional districts in California. These kind of things can move things around the margins and can change. But the starting point is still what we're talking about. The starting point we're talking about right now is that this is not an environment that is just like a gimme putt for Democrats in these districts. These districts are still going to be hard to win, in part because these aren't districts that were, you know, weak members of Congress swept in by some big Republican wave that never existed in California. These are members of Congress who survived the 2012 Democratic presidential cycle. They survived the 2016 very tough Democratic presidential cycle in California. And um, but and so out. to say that in 2018 they're going to be more vulnerable than they were you know, a year ago is, but is in California, tough on the basics. The presidential year turnout how did that compare to 2012 in California only? Well, so in terms of total turnout, it was very similar to 2012. In terms of the partisanship of the presidential vote, it was actually better than 2012 because better you for saw, the Democrats. Well, for better for the Democrats because if you look at like the Orange County turning uh, Democratic for the first time in its history, that's an indication that in some of the areas that have these Republican seats, like in Orange County, where the where the base Republican voter is higher income, that there was a greater vulnerability in 2016 for those members of Congress than there was in 2012. Right. You also have the demographics is destiny thing. You know, fast forward four more years, that means four more years of, you know, uh, 14 to 16 to 18 year old Latinos becoming voting age, four more years of you know, the 24 to 30-year-old Latinos getting older and being higher turnout propensity. So you have a lot of kind of demographics as destiny things happening in between 2012 and 2016. But the bigger issue was the, the you know, kind of wave of, in California, reaction to the presidential race and big Democratic gains in, you know, throughout the state. That 25th uh, CD, Knight, uh, Steve Knight, I'd ask that same question to... Uh, to uh, Jonathan, who mm-hmm. you pull with, and he thought that might be one of the districts that flips, given Orange County's demographics in the last the last election and how they voted, might go from Republican to Democratic. I mean, from yeah, from Republican. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, the the Steve Knight district is actually North LA County, mm-hmm. right? And um, it's a weird area because it's kind of on the precipice of urban LA media market, and then kind of the Central Valley, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, kind of voter, especially in the among the white voters. The white voters in Palmdale are gonna be less Is that a high affluent. Desert district then? Yeah, I mean it's of, yeah, okay. it's up it's it it's it's an area that is it it experiences like this creep from LA and then it also has like this Central Valley kind of identity up there. Um, I think the ones that are really gonna be toughest if the things are moving in this direction will be the Republican districts that are held in areas where that Republican base is a more high-educated Republican base mm. and where the independent voters are more coastal progressives 
Whereas in the Central Valley and the Inland Empire, or in the Central Valley or in, um, uh, you know, that North LA County area, the SD25, the, the independent voters there are more conservative. So um, there, you can't take all those seven districts, especially the Valladolid district, and say these are all kind of equal, on equal playing field. Um, because when you look at the Republican bases, you see different demographics. And, um, and so, you know, there are wild cards out there. One huge wild card, which I have to deal with all the time on Twitter, is uh, this, idea that, yeah, this idea that the U.S. Senate race and the governor's race could go Democrat versus Democrat. Um, I think that's highly unlikely. Uh, I think that you're going to have um, enough Republican voters voting just blindly for Republican candidates, um, or siloed at least for Republican candidates. Who are the Republican candidates? I mean, you're looking. Well, there's no Republican candidate right now in the U.S. Senate race, but there yeah. will be somebody. Uh-huh. And uh, there are two, maybe three candidates for the Republican primary in the governor's race. And um, the polling that the LA Times just did had, uh, you know, Travis Allen and. John Cox in San Diego. I saw Travis Allen fundraising off to the fact that he is now at 15%. Yeah. Well, those are tough polls. And I've got a whole beef with the LA Times poll that was just done. We can talk about it at the end here if you'd like. But um, definitely, definitely. yeah, you like pollster versus pollster yeah. fights. In fact, I want to ask you another pollster. We'll get to that too. But the polls, the polls at the beginning of the night on election night back in, the, in Virginia, there uh-huh. were some numbers I thought were interesting. I'll run yeah. those by you too. So, um, uh, you know, the, if the races, if we have a huge Democratic turnout in the primary, and I mean huge, like we had in 2016, where uh, Democrats were 52% of the voters, which was a high watermark for Democrats in California, period. And where there was this completely asymmetric election in the 2016 primary, um, where on the high end, Democratic turnout was being propelled by this competitive Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders dust up and the, uh, you know, this really, really high turnout, record high turnout for Latinos and young people. And on the Republican side, turnout was rather depressed because the Republican race was basically done. It had been Mm -hmm. Donald Trump had already declared victory in Indiana when he won there. The other Republican candidates had dropped out. And so as a Republican, you're voting as a protest. As a Democrat, you're voting as a race that seems almost like it's still live, active race. And so if we had in 2018 somehow, and I don't see how, but if we had in 2018 this completely asymmetric turnout where Democrats are turning out at Record numbers and Republican turnout is emaciated. And that could happen if, if Trump's popularity continues to fall. That ostensibly could happen. It could, but the problem is these California elections generally aren't so nationalized in California. We're talking about state issues. We're talking about state candidates. People in California aren't voting. They know a Democrat's going to win, right? So they're not voting uh, as a progressive to the Democrat side. They're not voting as like a, you know, a you know, kind of an insult to Trump or trying to beat. In Virginia, when they were voting, those Democrats were turning out because Ed Gillespie's ads were like Trump message, Trump message, Trump message. And they really thought that the Trump candidate could win, so they turned out and voted as a protest to Trump. In California... The turnout for them was amazing. Gillespie got more votes than any other gubernatorial candidate in Virginia history, except (laughs) for Northam. Exactly. So the, the turnout was great for him, but the turnout was... 
Incredible. Incredible for Democrats, yeah. Incredible turnout for Democrats. And so one of the challenges we have in California is one of the reasons we don't have these waves, um, arguably, is that in Virginia, the press nationally, you know, everything is on Fox News, CNN, showed a completely, an extremely competitive race between a very pro-Trump message Republican candidate who's hitting on, you know, the kneeling at the national anthem and illegal immigrations and sanctuary states and, and all the Republican, you know, kind of Trump administration message points versus a Democrat who might not even win, who was actually kind of seen as kind of losing in the last few days. And so turnout does turn out in this huge wave. In what world are we going to have elections in California where you're going to have a top of the ticket, either for the U.S. Senate race or governor? Well, diversity may run. Where they're – they're, yeah, but where they're hitting these, these very, very controversial messages, driving up turnout among Democrats because Democrats are afraid that Doug Osi is going to be the next governor of the state. Um, very unlikely that you're going to – you don't have that same kind of wave function. Um, Amazing media, pervasive media presence too. Northern Virginia really is the Washington suburb. Oh, I know it is. You know? it is. So you've got all this national Washington political coverage on this state race. It's just, it's odd. And that's the way it is all around. Outside of, the, outside of California, there's this kind of intermeshing of national politics and, low, and state politics. And when I've worked in races in North Carolina, New Jersey, Delaware, um, even West Virginia, um, when I've worked in political races in those states, it's like you're on the ground in Delaware or in New Jersey, but the messages that are happening are all about uh, Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah. And the consultants that are working on those races are all Washington, D.C. consultants. Were there any lessons learned um, from the last election for pollsters? It's a pollster question. Mm-hmm. Uh, going into um, Tuesday night, uh, the couple polls, I, well, one in particular I was looking at in the survey was in the New York Times, basically had the two gubernatorial candidates in a statistical heat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Northam was up by th- three points. The margin of error was three points. But my sense was, just looking at the way people were talking, this is Twitter chatter, mm-hmm. was that people kind of a little bit holding back a little. There just wasn't quite that aggressive, you know, we're really we're going to make assertively make a determination about what's going to happen. Ultimately, some did, and many did, I guess. And some projections were good, and some actually were uh, short of what actually happened. But I think they were all short of what actually happened. Yeah, yeah I mean, I don't uh, think any pollster got it. Came out. Yeah. Quinnipiac the one, was you know, dead on. Tim points. was mentioning. The, oh, really? Uh, Quinnipiac had nine points. He, the one Fiddler he, he had mentioned. You know, she had said. You know, there might be six seats, six or seven, seven seats. Yeah. Uh, and then in the middle of the night, I, or not even in the middle, early in the proceeding there that night, I guess it was by 5 o'clock our time, Dave Wasserman with the Cook Report yeah. said, I'm going to go out on a, on a limb here, but there's actually a chance they may flip the House. Yeah. And I'm thinking, House of Delegates in Virginia, I'm thinking, no, there's no way. Uh, and yet, I don't think it's happened yet. I think the recounts are still going on. But that's pretty amazing that that early in the, you could sense that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wondered how the pollsters... When you're looking at the numbers, how are you? How are you looking at them? Any different? Or do you? Or is there any yeah, difference? Yeah, there's. So the polling. So first off, pollsters came out of 2016 with just mud on their face, and it's not inside. It's not exactly. Uh, 
it, people would, you know, kind of view the pollsters as having failed in 2016. They really didn't. Um, you know, national polls were looking at the popular vote, not necessarily looking at the electoral g- breakdown. And uh, in that national vote tally, they were right. You know, they said Hillary Clinton was going to win by one or two points. And she won the national vote by one or two points. So they were correct, except for the LA Times poll, which said she was going to, Donald Trump was going to win the national vote, uh, which was, it was the most biggest outlier poll in the country. Um, it happened oddly to be correct that he was going to win, but the wrong way, you know? Um, and so uh, now it does seem as though the pollsters are a little bit gun shy. And it's, it always is this concern that you have when uh, you're watching polls come out and pollsters are watching other pollsters. And there's this kind of group think that happens sometimes where pollsters don't want to go out and say the thing that's the outlier. They don't want to do something oh, that's yeah, sure. that they, they're sitting there and they're looking at their poll and they show you know, a race being a blowout, and they kind of want to back that off a little bit. They're hurting. There's a, yeah, it's, it's a hurting that's effect. That's the pollster's equivalent of the reporter's herd instinct. Yeah, exactly, you know, you yeah. You the reporter that's out there arguing, you know, or not arguing, but reporting something, and everybody else is going the other way. You know? Yeah, so um, there, I think people should be concerned about that, and they should look at polls with a little bit of skepticism because of that. Um, and uh, The reporters notice us because you're all we've got. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, you know, reporters will re- re- they report the poll results because when you want to, if you're covering a political race, it, you're reading these these numbers. It looks objective. It yeah. looks it like evidence, and it, it well, it and that can lead us into sweat, my you know? yeah. Um, if we're so done, it's your talk, fault. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, when we look at this 2018 primary, like I said, I don't think it's going to go dem on dem in either the governor's race or the um, U.S. Senate race, in part because in order to do that, we would have to have totally asymmetric turnout from Democrats and Republicans. We'd also have to have a lot of people who've traditionally voted for Republicans, either the Republican members themselves or independents that vote Republican, switching over to choose one of the Democratic candidates. And we haven't seen that in California. We've seen from legislative races on up that partisan voters kind of silo themselves to vote in their partisan buckets, even if their partisan candidates are relatively unknown. The U.S. Senate race aside uh, from 2016, these, this gubernatorial and, and U.S. Senate race do not appear to look as though they're headed to a dem-on-dem runoff. If they did, then we would have to come back and re-record a podcast and say what in the bejesus is going to happen in the 2018 general election, um, how many Republican members of Congress could survive yeah. An election where the top of the ticket for Democrats is the most intensely focused, watched, high-profile, dem-on-dem governor's race in the country, the most intensely fought, high-media attention, dem-on-dem uh, race for the U.S. Senate in the country. That's what Democrats are voting on, and Republicans are voting for insurance commissioner. Do you think it, you know? does, it make any, does it make any difference? Uh, just We were talking about this earlier, about... Um, Four members of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors endorsing De Leon. San Francisco, this yeah, is yeah, yeah. Einstein's hometown. It yeah. just seems to me, you know, what do you think? Is this well, a the, off or nothing? The, or? The, the Senate race, I mean, the, we did our own polling. Looking oh, Rokan endorsed Yeah, Rokan endorsed it too. Um, you know, Capital Weekly did its own polling with Jonathan Brown on the U.S. Senate race, and it did show Diane Feinstein with a healthy lead, a Republican 
placeholder coming in second place yeah. and then and Kevin DeLeon in third. Um, you know, so there's a lot of movement to happen in that Senate race. We're, I mean, there's a lot of time between now and then to kind of see how that builds up and what kind of if Steyer yeah. gets in the race or what Republican gets in the race and yeah. so on. Um, but, you know, if we do have Dem on Dem in the general election, then it's going to be nightmare scenario for Republicans in California. Will you go around Capitol Park again, naked? Uh, I think if, <laughs> I have to wait to see how many, if no Republican files in the U.S. Senate race, then that's okay. a dummy bet. If you say yes, Tim can edit this out. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll see what we'll my betting like. situation is. But in the governor's <laughs> we'll race, yeah. sure. In the governor's yeah. race, sure. Yeah. Um, a Republican will make the runoff in the governor's race, given the current lineup of candidates. You we'd heard have to it review. now, so we may yes. see a repeat. We, we'd have to review run. it. We'd have to review that uh, statement after we see yeah. the final filing and how many candidates file and how that looks. But Is there a chance, seriously, for a, a major... Republican contender, who that might have been, Kevin Falconer is not going to get in the race. But Osi has made is Doug Osi a possibility? I mean, Travis Allen and Cox are already out there as statewide candidates. But yeah, uh, and Osi, Cox, or Allen, any of those three, I think, could be does, the ones that grab. You know, I know that I've been seeing a lot of messages on Twitter about how the gas tax repeal doesn't drive. It's not going to be the the manna from heaven for Republicans. What does that do? What do you think? If they get, you know, can a repeal of the gas tax drive Republican turnout enough to make any real significant difference there? In the general election, uh, if there's no Republicans on the ballot, in no, the I mean, it, Senate, it's not going to drive turnout in the primary because it's not going to be on the primary ballot. It's going to be on the general election okay. ballot. Um, but I do think that what, what Alan's trying to do is find an issue that he can drive, use to kind of ride for the media attention and, and, and for branding. Okay. And in that way, you look at Cox pushing this reform the legislature ballot measure. You look at Allen as being this repeal the gas tax ballot measure. Allen's does seem a little more salient to most voters. Um, Also saved the fire rings on Newport Beach. He was really involved in that. There you go. (laughs) Um, So, uh, but I do think that as we get closer, we'll start to see some of these candidates rising to the top. Um, Which kind of leads us into the, maybe our last little topic, which is this USC poll that I think uh, we have to look at and might do some kind of a little bit of analysis of. Um, USC had the worst poll of the 2016 election cycle. It was this an innovative... Oh, we got the call. <coughs> yeah. It was this innovative poll in that what it did is it, did is it created a panel of people who around the country were going to be repeatedly called and asked their view of the presidential race. And this panel would kind of... There'd be a set number of people that were doing it it would kind of, as they asked more people, some other people would fall off the poll. So there was this kind of like moving average element to it. Um, and it used for weighting, you know, like ethnicity, partisanship, region of the country, and yeah. also who they voted for in the last presidential election cycle, which is a flawed metric. But it predicted that Trump was going to win the popular vote. Uh, it was by that measure the furthest outlier in the country. And now they've come out... And in this celebration of how they did so great in the 2016 election cycle by, you know, I don't know what measure. It was really kind of the spin-doctored release they put out saying that, uh, praising themselves for their poll, which was undeniably the worst poll in the country last cycle. But nevertheless, they're going to bring that poll methodology to the state elections, and they're going to start doing polling in California based on the same kind of methodology. You mean having panels of the same people? Yeah. Repeating the questions to the same Yeah, and, and that... I, the details of their poll, it is going to be a panel survey. It's a large size 
you know, so you're looking at 1,200 or so uh, individuals being a part of this. Uh, and we're seeing the first release of that data. We haven't gotten full data, which we really want to see to like dig into how the data is done. But so far, the poll has been, uh, you know, rather disappointing. Um, it, for one, it has these rather strange uh, breakdowns in terms of regionally, uh, with depending on how, how they're doing their math. 15 to 19% of the voters coming from the Bay Area and 32, 33% of the voters coming from LA, which is not how we expect a primary to work. Um, in registered voters, LA is about a third larger than uh, the Bay Area in registered voters, but in turnout, the Bay Area is actually larger than LA. Yeah. And we've seen, we've done, you've had two stories, one yeah. by me and one by somebody else, uh, focusing on this dynamic. We just and, rewrote yours. But oh, yeah. yeah. But the, and, and so this poll doesn't really, I think, reflect the state. Demographic, you know, geographically, um, in terms of ethnicity, it seems to kind of miss the mark on the Latino vote. Um, if you go to the same people each time, um, are you are you sacrificing something? I mean, isn't a poll supposedly you know you use your magic sauce and you have a random sampling each time? You there is a weird question about like if you know you're going to get called in another month to ask the same questions, are you going to now pay more attention to the race than you would yeah. have otherwise? Mm -hmm. It's kind of the Schrodinger's cat thing, you know, of, you know, you know that the question's coming, and so therefore it changes your, the reality of how you're going to perceive the thing. Yeah. Um, and so there is that. Um, uh, the poll they just came out with, it kind of blew my mind in a couple different ways. One was um, they did the U.S. Senate race and the president and the governor's race. In the governor's race, they asked all the candidates, they, on their press release, they misspelled John Chung. They said Delaney Easton was the current superintendent of public instruction. They gave Viragosa the former L.A. mayor ballot designation, which I think a lot of people think that he can't use. Um, and, uh, but other than that... Well, then they, they, didn't, they didn't include the people who said they weren't going to vote in the base. Um, and then... Uh, in the U.S. Senate race, they didn't put political party. So they asked if people are going to vote for Democrat Antonio Viragosa, Republican John Cox in the governor's race. In the U.S. Senate race, they just said Kevin DeLeon, you know, State Senator Kevin DeLeon and, and U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. Um, and so without that partisan signaling, uh, they even had one version that had Tom Steyer. Without that partisan signaling, it's like that poll is just worthless. Um, given how important party is in determining, uh, you know, the vote. So this poll is now out there. The LA Times, I think, is going to continue with this USC poll through the cycle. Um, I don't know how much they're going to be making their methodology more public so that we can kind of dig uh -huh. into it. I hope they do. Um, I don't know if they're going to make changes to the poll that they put out or the methodology that they're using. But... Right now, that's looking concerning. Um, and now, we've most seen, polls put out their methodology. Uh, yeah. You, you describe... Yeah, they put out some methodology, but it's a little bit unclear. Like, the stuff okay. they did put out, when you try to put into Excel spreadsheet and break it down, it doesn't okay. add up to... Well, <laughs> it I know doesn't with add field up right. and IGS, I recall. Oh, yeah, PPIC, yeah. too. They have extensive... Extensive cross-tabs. There are some cross-tabs in uh, their polling, but they don't have final cross-tabs on the breakdown of the respondents okay. like they do in other polls. Um, so you can't see in the poll how many, what percentage were Asian, African-American, Latino. Um, uh, you can't see 
the raw total breakdowns of people from around the different geographies of the state. So we're going to watch that closely. Um, you know, we've come out before and kind of slammed Survey USA that does some polling that's pretty awful in California. Um, I'd hate to beat up on my alma mater, USC, but uh, it looks like what they have so far in California. But your former is really professor called that race. Remember, he called. Oh well, that was my American <laughs> University professor who presumably called the Trump race what two years before or something like that. Called the Trump victory. Okay, well now that we've offended pollsters. Uh, and both the schools that I attended for college, yeah. Two major educational institutions and the state's largest newspaper. Paul Mitchell, thank you very much. <laughs> the, the biggest thing I learned yeah. here is that Paul Mitchell was on Twitter in 2010. Oh, so. God. Thank you, Paul. Hey, thank you very Thanks much. A Thanks a lot. Good seeing you. All right.